Section 2 of The Fourth Dimension Simply Explained by Henry Parker Manning. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Avai in June 2016. Introduction, Part 2. 3. We proceed to give some further account of the four dimensional geometry. We do not intend to repeat what is given in the essays, except so far as may be necessary in order to correct possible erroneous impressions or to amplify certain points. It may be that the reader will find it better to read some of the essays before going on with this introduction. Footnote. There is quite a diversity in the use of terms in geometry of four dimensions. Most of the terms used in this book, however, are defined when used or are readily understood. End footnote. When two planes are absolutely perpendicular at a point O, any point in one can go completely around O and around the other plane, keeping all the time at the same distance from O and from the other plane. Thus, we can go around a plane in space of four dimensions, just as in our space we can go around a line. A two-dimensional being cannot go around a line in his plane, it divides the plane completely. And so we cannot go around a plane in our space, for it divides our space completely. But in space of four dimensions, a plane, though having two dimensions, lacks two, and in these we can go round the plane keeping all the time at a given distance from one particular point of it. If we can discard one of the dimensions of the plane, taking from the plane only a line and put ourselves into a three-space that contains the absolutely perpendicular plane, we shall find that the path of the motion is all in view, appearing to us now as a path going around a line. A plane can rotate on itself around one of its points. If two planes are absolutely perpendicular at a point O, one of them, rotating on itself in this way, remains absolutely perpendicular to the other. We may speak of the plane as rotating about the fixed plane as axis plane. At each point of a fixed plane is an absolutely perpendicular plane, and these absolutely perpendicular planes may all rotate together about the fixed plane. This is the same as when we have in our three space a fixed line and at each point a plane perpendicular to the line. Thus we think of objects in our space or of a portion of space as rotating about a fixed axis line, and in the same way we can think of objects in four space or of a portion of four space as rotating about a fixed plane as axis plane. In this rotation the parts are not distorted, they retain their form rigidly and need not be flexible. We may also use a curved surface as axis of a rotation if we allow for a slight amount of distortion. We will use the term material surface for a substance having two dimensions of considerable extent and two dimensions very small, just as we may say in our space that a piece of cloth has two dimensions of considerable size and one dimension very small, or that a string has one principal dimension and two dimensions very small. 
If we have such a material surface that is flexible, we may rotate it, each portion on itself, so that two opposite sides of it shall exchange places. A material surface like a piece of cloth with a slight thickness in the fourth dimension will have surfaces all around it. We may say that a turning of such a substance on itself through 180 degrees brings the same two sides back into our space, each on the side originally occupied by the other. The different parts of the surface do not interfere with one another in this process, and so it may take place whether the surface is open, any piece of a material surface, or completely closed like a hollow rubber ball. In our space a rubber band may be twisted on itself so as to be turned inside out. This corresponds exactly to the turning of a sphere inside out in space of four dimensions. The relation of symmetrical figures is referred to in several of these essays, but not always quite correctly. Symmetrical figures can best be understood by considering positions of symmetry with respect to a point, line or plane. Figures in a plane symmetrical with respect to a point are equal, for one can be turned about the point to the position of the other. Figures in a plane symmetrical with respect to a line, however, cannot be made to coincide without turning one of them over, turning it through space. Such figures would be regarded by two-dimensional beings as truly symmetrical, with corresponding parts equal, but arranged in opposite orders, so that it would never be possible to make them coincide. Figures in space of three dimensions, symmetrical with respect to a line, can be made to coincide by turning one of them about the line. On the other hand, figures symmetrical with respect to a point and figures symmetrical with respect to a plane, unless they are actually plane figures, are truly symmetrical and can never be made to coincide by a motion in space. Figures symmetrical with respect to a plane can be made to be symmetrical with respect to a point, and figures symmetrical with respect to a point can be made to be symmetrical with respect to a plane. Suppose, for example, two figures are symmetrical with respect to a plane. We connect them by a rod perpendicular to the plane and join pairs of corresponding points by lines, say elastic cords. Then, if we turn one of them halfway around on the rod as axis, the elastic cords will all cross one another at the point where the axis rod meets the original plane of symmetry, and they will become symmetrical with respect to this point. Now, in space of four dimensions, figures may be symmetrical with respect to a point, a line, a plane, or a three-space. Figures symmetrical with respect to a point may be made to be symmetrical with respect to a plane and vice versa, and figures symmetrical with respect to a line may be made to be symmetrical with respect to a three-space and vice versa. Figures symmetrical with respect to a three-space are truly symmetrical and can never be made to coincide by any motion in four-dimensional space. They may be said to have their parts arranged in opposite orders. 
but figures symmetrical with respect to a plane may be made to coincide by rotating one of them about the plane as axis plane through a rotation of 180 degrees, and this is true whether they are four-dimensional figures or three-dimensional figures. Thus, to a four-dimensional being, things which we call symmetrical do not differ at all except in position. This is a very striking fact. A right glove turned over through space of four dimensions becomes a left glove, a right shoe becomes a left shoe, a right-handed man becomes a left-handed man. He does not use a different hand after the operation, but the hand which he uses now appears to everybody else as his left hand. In fact, his point of view is turned around so that to him everybody else appears to be changed. Letters appear to him to be turned backward like printer's type, the hands of a clock go backward, the world becomes to him a looking-glass world. There is a distinction not understood by some of these writers between turning an object over and turning it inside out. A right glove turned inside out in our space becomes a left glove, and a right glove turned over in space of four dimensions becomes a left glove, but when the glove is turned over it is not turned inside out. On the other hand, a right glove may be turned inside out in space of four dimensions in the same way that a closed rubber ball may be turned inside out. This process has been described in a preceding paragraph. The fingers and thumb do not come out through the wrist, but every part by itself in its own place is turned over with only a little possible stretching and a very slight changing of the positions of the different particles of matter which go to make up the glove. In this process, however, the glove does not become a left glove, but remains a right glove. We can get the analogy by supposing that we have in a plane a nearly closed figure. This can be turned into its symmetrical form by opening it out straight and bending it over the other way so that it is turned inside out. This process takes place entirely in the plane and can be performed by a two-dimensional being. The figure may also be changed into its symmetrical form by being turned over, but in this process it is not turned inside out at all. On the other hand, if it is sufficiently flexible, it may be turned inside out by twisting each part upon itself through 180 degrees, and in this process it is not changed into its symmetrical form. A hypersolid, that is, a portion of four-dimensional space, may be separated into two parts by a three-space. Thus, a section cutting a hypersolid into two parts will be three-dimensional. A plane cannot separate two parts of a hypersolid any more than a line can separate two parts of a solid in our space. We may make a line go through a solid, cutting out a hole. This may happen also to a hypersolid. A rod or material line having one principal dimension and the other three very small will pierce a hypersolid and make a hole through it. But we may also pierce a hypersolid with a flat plate, something having two principal dimensions and two dimensions very small. The plate passing through the hypersolid could extend indefinitely in its two principal dimensions but the hypersolid would not fall apart. 
Thus we have two kinds of holes in space of four dimensions, one-dimensional holes and two-dimensional holes. A one-dimensional hole may pass through an object in a direction away from our space, and the object will appear to us entirely closed but hollow, like a hollow sphere. A rod or cord may be passed through such a hole and held by it in position, but a rod or cord passed through a two-dimensional hole will slip away at once even if we hold its ends. A rod bent around so that its ends can be welded together becomes a ring. The hole through a ring is two-dimensional. Two rings fall apart, but a ring and a hollow sphere may be linked together. Thus we may form a change of alternate rings and hollow spheres. In an ordinary knot, one end of a cord is passed through a ring formed of the cord itself and slips away at once in space of four dimensions. Footnote. Some of the writers speak of a loop or two-dimensional knot as analogous to an ordinary knot made with a string in our space. This analogy seems to have been used by Zöllner, but there is the objection that the loop is not two-dimensional if one part of the string passes over the other part, however closely they may be pressed together. A better analogy would be obtained by fastening a string at one end to a small object and winding it around this object. In the plane this would be possible only by carrying the free end of the string completely around, but we could do it in space of three dimensions by lifting a part of the string over the object without moving the free end away from its position. End footnote. A wheel of four-dimensional matter in two dimensions of the shape of a circle and in the other two dimensions very small would have for axis a flat plate instead of a rod. This axial plate could extend indefinitely in all the directions of its plane without any interference with the wheel. Footnote. Sometimes we shall speak roughly of the plane of the wheel or the plane of the plate just as we might in our three-dimensional world. End footnote. The wheel can slip all around over the axial plate unless held to some position on it, just as with us a wheel may slip along on its axis unless held to some position on it. We may suppose that in a three-space we can see the axial plate and a pair of opposite radii, spokes of the wheel, appearing to us entirely separate, in this way we can see a two-dimensional hole. Or we can see the entire wheel with a hole through it and an axial rod cut from the axial plate by our three-space. We can fasten the wheel rigidly to the axial plate so that it will turn with the wheel, the wheel turning in its plane and the plate turning on itself. We may put more than one wheel on an axial plate putting different wheels at different points on the plate wherever we please. If these wheels are all fastened rigidly to the axial plate, we turn them all by turning one. Thus we have a method of constructing machinery in space of four dimensions. The axial plate may itself be a wheel. We may fasten two wheels together at their centers, making them absolutely perpendicular to each other. Such a figure can revolve in two ways, 
the plane of one wheel being the axis plane of the rotation and the plane of the other wheel the rotation plane. A wheel may be doubly circular so that a plane absolutely perpendicular to the wheel cuts it in a small circle, just as the plane of the wheel itself cuts it in a large circle. Such a wheel, then, may turn in two ways, and in either kind of rotation it rotates completely on itself without passing through any new portions of its four-dimensional space. We might have a spherical wheel, something in three dimensions of the shape of a sphere and its fourth dimension very small. Such a wheel with a one-dimensional hole through it may turn on an axial rod, but its motion is not confined to a definite direction of rotation as is the case with the flat wheel turning in its plane. For machinery requiring definite rotations we should use flat wheels with axial plates. Footnote. Hinton speaks of the four-dimensional being's shaft, a disc rotating around its central plane, and of the spherical wheel, the four-dimensional wheel. The fourth dimension, pages 61 and 71 to 73. By associating these, he leaves an impression that the axis of his wheel is his disc, whereas his wheel has a one-dimensional axis and is not the kind of wheel to be used with his four-dimensional shafting. End footnote. A spherical wheel may be used for vehicles. If four-dimensional beings lived on a four-dimensional earth, that is, alongside of its three-dimensional boundary, a vehicle with four or more wheels of either kind could be used in travelling over this earth. With a flat wheel he could travel only in a straight line without friction between the wheel and the earth, with a spherical wheel he could travel in any direction in a plane without such friction, but would meet with a slight friction in turning from one plane to another. A vehicle would require at least four wheels to be in equilibrium, and these must have at least two axes. Even with flat wheels and axial plates, it is necessary to have at least two of these plates. Anything to remain in equilibrium must have at least four points of support, not all in one plane. It is difficult to comprehend how the boundaries of hypersolids, that is, of portions of four-dimensional space, are three-dimensional. It is evident that analogy requires this, but it is not easy to understand how each point within a solid can be all that in its place separates the two portions into which the three-space of the solid divides four-space. At any point in the three-dimensional boundary of the hypersolid, we can start and go in three mutually perpendicular directions within this boundary, in as many directions as we have altogether in our three-dimensional space. We may have to trace curved paths if the boundary of the hypersolid is curved, but the paths start out in three mutually perpendicular directions, just as in our space. We can cut open a hypersolid bounded by polyhedrons so as to spread them out in a single three space. Reversing this process, we can form the boundary of a hypersolid by putting together suitable solids in a three space, say in our space, and then turning them on the faces which join them until they are all brought together. The solids are not distorted in any way, nor separated. 
Thus, if we take a cube, place six equal cubes on its six faces, and one extra cube on one of the six, see essay 4, figure 4 and context, these can all be turned and brought together to form the hypercube or tesseract which many of the essays describe. We have the analogy in the case of polyhedrons, whose faces can be cut apart sufficiently to spread them out in a single plane. The analogy is so very clear that we may feel sure of the process, although the result is most puzzling. We shall mention some of the simpler figures of four-dimensional geometry corresponding to the figures studied in our solid geometries. Among the first to be noticed are the hyperprism and hypercylinder with parallel line elements, and the hyperpyramid and hypercone with line elements meeting at a vertex. These all have for bases polyhedrons or solids of some kind, and the element lines extend away from the three-space of the base. The hypercube is a very particular case of the hyperprism. The simplest case of a hyperpyramid is a figure called a pentahedroid. It has for base a tetrahedron or triangular pyramid, and thus it has in all five vertices. Any five points not all in one three-space may be regarded as the vertices of a pentahedroid. These five points, taken four at a time, give us five tetrahedrons, and the pentahedroid may be taken in five different ways as a hyperpyramid. The tetrahedrons are placed together face to face, each having one face in common with each of the others. We can cut these tetrahedrons apart sufficiently to spread them out into one three-space. We then have a single tetrahedron with four others resting on its four faces. The pentahedroid is formed by turning these toward one another until they are brought completely together again. In this process none of the tetrahedrons is distorted, nor are they in any way separated from one another. When brought completely together, they form a single closed figure enclosing a portion of hyperspace. This is analogous to the way in which we can spread out the faces of a tetrahedron in a single plane, and, reversing the process, bring them together again and form the tetrahedron. In general, the boundary of a hyperpyramid consists of the polyhedron base and of lateral pyramids resting on the faces of the base. The lateral pyramids are joined to one another by their lateral faces in the same way that the faces of the polyhedron base are joined by the edges. A hyperpyramid whose base is a pyramid may be regarded in two ways as a hyperpyramid, the vertex in either case being the vertex of the pyramid base in the other case. The two pyramid bases have, then, a common polygon base, and the hyperpyramid may be considered as determined by a polygon and two points, not both in a three-space with the polygon. The line joining the two points may be called a line vertex, and the boundary consists of the two pyramids and the portion which may be generated by a triangle, varying it may be as to size and shape, with one side fixed, and with the opposite vertex tracing a polygon which does not lie in a three-space with the fixed side. The generating triangle may, then, be called a triangle element. 
Similarly, a hypercone with a cone for base may be regarded in two ways as a hypercone, and has for boundary the two cones and a portion generated by a triangle with one side fixed, the opposite vertex tracing a plane curve which does not lie in a three-space with the fixed side. The boundary of a hyperprism consists of the two polyhedron bases and a set of lateral prisms. The lateral prisms have for bases the faces of the polyhedron bases of the hyperprism and are joined to one another by their lateral faces. A hyperprism with prism bases has for lateral boundary two prisms and a set of parallelopipeds. Such a figure may be considered in two ways as a hyperprism, the two lateral prisms in one case being the two bases in the other case. The four prisms are joined in succession by their ends, and the series of parallelopipeds are joined, each to the two next to it, by two opposite faces, and to a lateral face of each of the four prisms by the remaining four faces. If the four prisms are cut away from the parallelopipeds and cut apart along one common base, they can be spread out in a single three-space, and if they are right prisms, they become a single right prism. The parallelopipeds may then be cut apart along one common face and spread out in like manner, forming when rectangular a single right prism, parallelopiped. These two long prisms may be placed together on any pair of faces that were originally together, one prism placed crosswise to the other, and then they may be turned from face to face all over one another. In the original figure they were wound around each other in such a way that every point in the lateral surface of one fitted upon a point in the lateral surface of the other, and they completely enclosed a portion of four-dimensional space. If from the four prisms are taken four elements that form a parallelogram, the set of parallelopipeds may be generated by moving this parallelogram parallel to itself, its vertices tracing the ends of the prisms. The set of four prisms may also be generated by one of the polygon bases moving parallel to itself, its vertices tracing the parallelograms which join the parallelopipeds to one another. Thus, the parallelogram and the polygon play the part of generating elements, each with the other for directrix in generating a portion of the hyperprism. In a similar way, we may have a hypercylinder with cylinder bases. A part of the lateral boundary consists of two cylinders joining the ends of the cylinder bases, and the figure may be taken in two ways as a hypercylinder. Four elements that form a parallelogram may be taken from the four cylinders, and the remaining part of the lateral boundary may be generated by this parallelogram moving parallel to itself, its vertices tracing the ends of the cylinders. Since the cylinders may be generated in a similar manner by a plane curve moving parallel to itself around any one of the parallelograms, we have a parallelogram and a closed plane curve, each playing the part of generating element with the other for directrix in generating one portion of the hypercylinder. The hyperprism with prism bases and the hypercylinder with cylinder bases are, then, 
particular cases of a class of hypersolids which may be described as follows. Two polygons or two closed plane curves, or a polygon and a plane curve, are placed together so that they intersect but do not lie in a single three space. Their planes will intersect only in the point where the curves intersect. One polygon or curve moves parallel to itself around the other and generates, with all of its interior points, a ring-shaped three-dimensional figure. The other polygon or curve moves in like manner around the first, generating a second ring-shaped figure. These two ring-shaped figures fit completely and together form the boundary of a hypersolid, enclosing a portion of four space. We may call the hypersolid a double prism, a prism cylinder, or a double cylinder, according as we have two polygons, a polygon and a curve, or two curves. When the planes of two generating polygons are absolutely perpendicular, we have a right double prism, and so for the others. If either portion of the boundary is separated from the other and cut through along one generator, it may be spread out into a single three space like our space. When the planes of the two generators are absolutely perpendicular, each portion of the boundary spread out into a single three space becomes a right prism or a right cylinder. We may in this case describe these figures in another way. To form a right double prism, for example, we take two right prisms with the altitude of each equal to the perimeter of the other. We can then bend these around each other, bring them together completely in all parts of their surfaces, and enclose a portion of four-dimensional space. In the same way, we can form a right prism cylinder or a right double cylinder, taking in one case a prism and a cylinder, and in the other case two cylinders. When cylinders of revolution are taken in this way, the double cylinder formed may be called a cylinder of double revolution. This can rotate in two ways independently about two absolutely perpendicular planes, the planes of the circles formed from the axis of the two cylinders. In each of these rotations, one of the axis circles rotates on itself, and the other, lying in the plane which is the axis of the rotation, remains stationary. When one of the component cylinders has a very small radius in comparison with the other, so that the second has a very small altitude, one cylinder being like a rope and the other like a wheel, the hypersolid is what we have called a doubly circular wheel. Footnote. Here we mean a three-dimensional rope, such as we are accustomed to see in our ordinary space. All the prisms and cylinders which we have just been discussing are three-dimensional and go to make up the boundaries of hypersolids. On the other hand, the axial plates and rods, as well as the flat wheels and spherical wheels spoken of on pages 30 to 32, are four-dimensional, having some thickness in all four dimensions. End footnote. One more figure which we have in four space is the hypersphere mentioned in one or two of the essays, the locus of points at a given distance from a fixed point. 
sometimes the term hypersphere is used to denote the hypersolid, the portion of force-space enclosed by this locus, which is then called the boundary or hypersurface of the hypersphere. The hypersphere, that is the boundary, is three-dimensional, and in it we have three-dimensional elliptic non-Euclidean geometry, just as the ordinary spherical geometry is two-dimensional elliptic non-Euclidean geometry. We will state some of the rules of mensuration for geometry of four dimensions. In the case of hypersolids, there are rules for computing the volume of the boundary or of portions of the boundary and for computing the hypervolume, that is, the magnitude of that portion of force-space enclosed. These rules may be derived for the most part as the corresponding rules for area and volume are derived in the ordinary geometry, or they may be obtained by the methods of the calculus. They all apply to regular figures, and most of them can be extended to certain other classes of figures, but these cases need not be taken up here. Hyperprism and hypercylinder Lateral volume equals area of the surface of the base multiplied by altitude. Hypervolume equals volume of the base multiplied by altitude. Hyperpyramid and hypercone. Lateral volume equals area of the surface of the base multiplied by one-third of altitude. Hypervolume equals volume of the base multiplied by one-fourth of altitude. Double prism, prism cylinder, and double cylinder. Volume of one portion of the boundary equals area of generating polygon or curve multiplied by the perimeter of the directrix. The total volume of the boundary is the sum of two such products. We may say that the total volume is the sum of the two products formed by multiplying the areas of the generating polygons or curves each by the perimeter of the other polygon or curve. Hypervolume equals product of the areas of the two generating polygons or curves. For the cylinder of double revolution of radii R and R', we have the formulae volume equals 2 to the power of pi squared times R R' times R plus R'. Hypervolume equals pi squared times r squared times r prime squared. Hypersphere. Volume of the boundary equals 2 pi squared times r to the power of 3. Hypervolume enclosed equals 1 half times pi squared times r to the power of 4. A cylinder of double revolution circumscribed to a hypersphere, its radii equal to the radius of the hypersphere, will have double the volume of the hypersphere and double the hypervolume of the hypersphere. 4. The question of the existence of space of four dimensions is one which we cannot escape. It may be well to remind the reader that this is not a mathematical question, though the most interesting of all. The possibility that we are a part of a four-dimensional space with physical limitations which confine us to a three-dimensional space and with limitations of our senses which prevent us from perceiving anything outside of this space 
this possibility excites the interest of all who are inclined to abstract speculation. Attempts may be made to discover physical proofs of such a space, to build up theories on its basis that will explain discoveries of modern physics as yet but little understood, or by it to account for various mysterious phenomena. Most of us are satisfied that no real proofs of the existence of space of four dimensions will be found along these lines. Even a workable hypothesis based on the existence of four-dimensional space, though it might serve temporarily better than any other hypothesis, would hardly justify a belief in this existence. But we do say that the existence of space of four dimensions can never be disproved by showing that it is absurd or inconsistent, for such is not the case. Nor, on the other hand, will the most elaborate development of the analogies of different kinds ever prove that it does exist. The following articles and books treat in a non-mathematical way of the fourth dimension or other modern ideas of geometry discussed in this book. E. A. Abbott, Flatland, Little Brown and Co. H. A. Bruce, The Riddle of the Fourth Dimension, Scientific American Supplement, Volume 66, page 146. T. P. Hall, the Possibility of a Realization of Fourfold Space, Science, May 13, 1892. C. H. Hinton, The Fourth Dimension, Harper's Magazine, July 1904. C. H. Hinton, published by Swan, Sonnenschein and Co. Scientific Romances, A New Era of Thought, The Fourth Dimension, An Episode of Flatland. C. J. Kaiser, Mathematical Emancipations, The Monist, Volume 16, 1906, page 65. Simon Newcomb, Modern Mathematical Thought, Bulletin of the New York Mathematical Society, Volume 3, January 1894, page 104. Simon Newcomb, The Philosophy of Hyperspace, Bulletin of the American Mathematical Society, 2nd Series, Volume 4, February 1898, page 187. Simon Newcomb, The Fairyland of Geometry, Harper's Magazine, January 1902. S. Four-Dimensional Space, Letter to the Editor, Nature, Volume 31, March 26, 1885, page 481. Hermann Schubert, The Fourth Dimension, The Monist, Volume 3, April 1903, page 402. Reprinted in Mathematical Essays and Recreations, Open Court Publishing Company. J. F. Springer, The Fourth Dimension Simply Explained, Scientific American, Volume 98, page 202. O. Veblen, The Foundations of Geometry, Popular Science Monthly, Volume 68, page 21. A very good treatment of the subject in German is Dr. Karl Kranz, Gemeinverständliches über die sogenannte vierte Dimension, Sammlung von Virchow und Wattenbach, Hamburg, 1890. End of section 2